Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and curator and film historian Alicia Fletcher. Nostalgia is a powerful thing, and very few industries know that better than the film industry. In this season of the podcast, we've already talked about monster kids making movies that paid homage to the movies they loved that came before them, to greater or lesser degrees of success. And although both Invaders from Mars and Night of the Creeps weren't financial successes, they were made with properties and ideas that appealed to a smaller niche audience of monster kids. That's not the case with our two movies today that took swings at mainstream heartstrings with beloved classic IP revivals. Now, weirdly, The Flintstones and Little Rascals weren't the only old IP made for a new audience in 1994. Richie Rich was another movie released that year. That has weird trivia, like the fact that Macaulay Culkin was already 5'2 when they cast him as Richie Rich and paid him $8 million for doing so, so they had to hire extremely tall adult actors to make him look child-sized. That was a critical and financial failure at the box office. But honestly, it wasn't as fun to talk about or watch as the other two movies we've chosen today. But before we get to them, Cam, why these properties in 94? Like, we're yeah. going way far back now. It's not even like the yeah, 50s yeah, to the 70s, right? It's like 60-ish years with the Little Rascals. But even more, I think, 60 to 70. I think, I mean, there's a few reasons. But I always bring it back to uh, one man uh, whose parents were murdered in an alleyway, Batman. Uh, <laughs> I think that Batman, as an IP... It was it, it was the number one film of 1989, uh, and also like not only was it an IP that Warner Brothers was probably just hanging out with, not doing anything. It was an, also an IP that was considered uh, toxic, like no one would think that you should remake Batman. And then they went ahead and did it and it made a bazillion mm. dollars. Uh, Batman was followed by huge successes with Dick Tracy, The Fugitive, The Adams Family, Dennis the Menace, all these movies. You can think like for for instance to me it'd be like Dick Tracy I'd be like oh yeah that was a that was that was a bomb but it was like it's in the top ten of the box office <laughs> it's uh, it made a lot of money that doesn't surprise me uh, and I think it's also just uh, especially with the uh, when you're talking about children's properties which we are today it's also like boomer nostalgia uh, even though obviously our gang predates the baby boomers it's a thing they watched on TV. So there's like a feeling of like, you know, one generation kind of handing down to the next. Uh, it's also an interesting time because we're just at kind of the nascent version of the Disney Renaissance. So actually children's movies are primarily mm -hmm. live action. Um, that's like the big grossing yes. one. We're still coming off of Home Alone, which you see quite a bit in these films. So, you know, the big ones that they tried the big swings for kids this year outside of these films were baby's day out monkey trouble andre 
like really um kind of strange properties like that on top of that there was also a change in uh how actors saw these properties uh you don't see it in little rascals because it's all children more or less <laughs> uh but a lot of people point to specifically angelica houston in the adams family uh, mm. like a fairly classy actor having fun with and uh making a big deal out of that role and also apparently because uh these intellectual properties were considered a bit of a step down they got points on the back end for these films what does that Uh, mean so uh, it means that you make some of the box office gross on top of uh your payment you are making uh, so if you were in the Adams family, for instance, Angelica Houston may have made quite a pretty penny. I mean, that is her iconic role. That's I mean, mm-hmm. you're the wrong gen. I, I've watched other like films of hers, like Princey's Honor and such, and I know she's fantastic. But from to my childhood, oh yeah, that was the most iconic person in the world was Angelica yeah. Houston. There's something about the idea too of these properties because they are so old, you can reinvent them for a new audience, right, and mm-hmm. kind of take them into the future. And I think Adams family is, as I'm sure we'll talk about Adams family on the podcast throw an mc hammer song on there and you're modern all of a sudden (laughs) exactly yeah i was thinking bobby brown did one for ghostbusters too there's a whole i'm sure we could do a whole podcast on like songs rap songs written for things you know your hat is like a shark fin with deep blue sea we'll get into it but (laughs) um deep blue sea the podcast but but it is i would do it don't don't tempt me i will do it but there is something about yeah that you can now reinvent for a new audience and kind of create it and i think the adams family actually kind of set the standards for not just these two movies that we're going to talk about because they are are both for adults and kids at the same yeah. time, which these are as well. Rewatching it, I actually recently we rewatched Adam's Family with my small person. They loved it. I loved it. And they didn't get half the jokes. They just yeah. thought it was incredibly cool and they liked the spookiness, right? Yeah. I, I also think in a like a more boring way but a way that i think we all enjoy uh there's a big push especially in 1994 a lot of people show we talked about in the 80s uh both on the show and on the podcast the 80s is when studio executives really became business people they mm-hmm. they were people who had mbas and one of the things they pushed a lot which really connected uh starting in the 90s was vertical integration which oh, okay. is like considering that the company making the movie owns the whatever owns the whatever they own the theme park they own the The toy maker they own the music they own it all yeah especially the music actually you're absolutely right you see a lot of this and i think ip that you already own is a part of that process so when we're talking about these old properties they're quite often with a studio due to them owning the television rights or then them owning whatever it's not like they're running around begging somebody for the our gang rights they're probably sitting on their butt I think by that point, our gang coming into Little Rascals, our first film, I could be wrong, but was probably already public domain. Fair enough. That that is that one is old enough that yeah. uh, it gets the special treatment. But yeah, I mean, and also when we talk about, like you were saying, Becky, I just want to rattle off some of these. Uh, on top of uh, Flintstones uh, and the Little Rascals that we're talking about, you had uh, The Shadow, which we will talk about. Next week. Uh, <laughs> you had Lassie. The much forgotten oh, yeah. 1994 Lassie film. You had Black Beauty, Miracle on 34th Street, a remake of the 1939 film Love Affair. Uh, wow. Deborah Hill, of course, was doing the Rebel Highway series that we've mentioned a bit that was kind mm-hmm. of 50s drive in stuff again. And uh, I watched the terrible abortive Buster Poindexter musical uh, Car 54, Where Are You? <laughs> Which is uh, was actually from 1990, but uh, only released in 1994. So, yeah, there's so many. And, and honestly, if you look at the previous few years it just has been going on this whole time there's something too about 
all of the ways they've reinvented these scripts, almost all of them involve some sort of corporate greed. So the Beverly Hillbillies has the same plot line, which you also have in the Flintstones, mm-hmm. which we're about to talk about. So like the way, the reason that they've chosen to put all of this in like the same kind of context and basically remake the Hudsucker Proxy is really yeah. fascinating to me. And I mean, the funny thing is, I think it came up in a few reviews of the Flintstones is... Like the Flintstones, like I say, is this massive project of vertical integration and inescapable marketing. And then the the storyline is like, aren't corporations evil? (laughs) Way to have your cake and eat it too, man. All right. Well, let's get into that because the Flintstones as a live action movie had been kicking around Hollywood since the 80s. And by the time it got to the big screen as we know it now, it had garnered at least 35 credited writers who had worked on it. And we're going to talk about that a bit later because it actually changed a bunch of guild rules. It's fascinating. Uh, But it was clear that a lot of people loved this idea and really wanted to make it happen. And this movie made... A ton of money, so like three hundred and forty-one million dollars, which is well in box office alone. That's not home video. That's not anything on else. a forty million dollar budget, mm-hmm. which is wild. Yeah, and this was not one that I had seen before the podcast. Uh, but I remember my aunt telling my mom that we needed to see it, not for the plot, but for what they do. Which interestingly is exactly what all of the critics pointed to in this: was you don't watch it for the plot, you watch <laughs> it for what they do. So we have the p- benefit of hindsight now cam is this movie deserving of people's approval and reevaluation? you know what i i it's tough obviously i was like i was <laughs> i was the right perfect age for it uh, so i i don't but i don't know that i loved it when it came out weirdly but i f- have found uh i've come to love it quite a bit i think especially as somebody who loves practical effects uh, and just design, it's crazy. Yeah. There will never be another movie like this, probably. The, it's the incredible. The level incredible. of world they build and everything is... It's It's also crazy to me that they weren't, like, showered with Oscars, you know, for uh, creating it. I also think it's it's a weird one. I feel like this comes up a lot with adaptations with me, but it's, like, it's hard to imagine... As much as there's problems with this film, it's hard to imagine a better Flintstones. You know, or there was one of the interpretations of one of the scripts I, versions I saw where they got laid off their jobs and it became a road movie yes. with their families, the which is a of very weird idea. Is what yeah, call it. <laughs> that's wild. <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah, I guess as it is, just for a quick plot summary, it's like basically uh, almost a noir plot <laughs> where uh, Fred is the patsy of this uh, evil corporate man by played by Kyle MacLachlan. Uh, he, him, and his uh, secretary Sharon Stone, played by Halle Berry. Not it was uh, meant to be Sharon Stone. Yes, was of course, Sharon Stone. Stone. I'm sure we'll go into it. They essentially make him this patsy, and in the in the patsy stuff, he is made to fire Barney, uh, and then it puts Barney and Fred in in tension, uh, partially because Fred only became the patsy because. Barney switched uh, aptitude tests with him, uh, saying that Fred is apparently so stupid that he can't even be a patsy, uh, which is kind of charming. They go out of their way to have every single Flintstones moment uh, that you love, uh, fighting Dino, bowling, uh, charge it on their credit cards. They've got they've got it all. So, the garburator, uh, that's the garburator. pig that just eats all the food under the sink. Uh-huh. You yeah, get the, animals all the saying it's a living. Uh, you get yeah. record playing birds. Um, a, l- a large <laughs> plot for a bird shaped dictaphone. Uh, <laughs> dictaphone bird is 
like the MVP in terms sure. of acting. Harvey Corman, yeah. great yeah. actor. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so uh, it, it, you know, it all—it's a Flintstones plot. There's, there's not a lot to it. Uh, blessedly, not a lot of pebbles and Bam Bam. Uh, and yeah, I don't know. But just enough, just enough. Now, interestingly, I was like, because when I saw Pebbles was not played by the Olsen twins, I was like, how old were the Olsen twins in 94? And they will be in the next movie we're going to be talking about. So they were active. I was like, are they contractually obligated? Yeah, they were too busy being creepy. Exactly. That's what I figured. So I was like, okay, so that's why. And also, they're just a little too old to play Pebbles. Like, had they had they done this when they originally intended to, you know, you would have seen the Olsen twins as Pebbles. Yeah. And in fact, I think the kids are a little old for my conception of Pebbles and Bam Bam in the cartoon is they were I think so, but I think to have them do what you need them to do, you would end up with like a weird, creepy CGI 1994 baby. Yeah, and and one thing to be said, how beautiful this all is, is the CGI. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have to say, like, this is (laughs) basically the same team that put Jurassic Park together. Like, it's very similar. It's Stan Winston's Creature Workshop who did Jurassic Park. This one is the Jim Henson Company, but still working with Industrial Light and Magic. Um, And it looks uh, like, there's yeah, the CGI is not great, but the the practical effects These are, are some, insane. I mean, I can't call them Muppets. Not everything that came out of the creature shop is considered a Muppet, but the creatures, the Jim Henson creatures <laughs> on this are fantastic. The Dicto Bird, um, Dino yeah. when he, so Dino is both Dino. CGI and practical. Yeah. Practical Dino is fantastic. He's mostly yeah, It's practical. more the scenes of him running, I yeah. think, are CGI. Um, you know, mm-hmm. it opens just like the opening of the Flintstones, the animated version. Yeah. You know, you're at a drive-in with a Brontosaurus, and the Brontosaurus looks fantastic. These are great cartoon dinosaurs, um, cartoonized dinosaurs made in three-dimensional. It's it's really remarkable. The Dicta Bird, I just, I love this guy. Like, I wish he had his own <laughs> spinoff. I need your help, Mr. Bird. And you hear everything that goes on in this office. Mm-hmm. You are the only one who can help clear my husband. My, my, what a delicious irony. Thank you for sharing it with me. Now, let me share something with you. <laughs> Well, let's talk about the casting of this because uh, the casting had been settled on John Goodman for a long time. And oh. Cam, you actually tell it really well in uh, the on uh, on film series for Hollywood Suite on YouTube. Sure, you want to yeah. kind of uh, recap Goodman, that for us? John uh, Goodman co-starred in St- Steven Spielberg's much forgotten film, Always. Uh, and when he apparently mm. sat down for the table read, Steven Spielberg declared, I found my friend Flintstone. <laughs> and uh, John Goodman oh, didn't love that. <laughs> he felt quite railroaded <laughs> into being Fred Flintstone. But it sounds like once he got on set, um, he enjoyed it. The funny thing actually is, if you watch most of the behind the scenes stuff, the only person who seems like a big uh, Flintstones fan is Halle Berry. <laughs> Halle Berry seems like, and it might be interesting. An, I guess she's not too far age-wise from John Goodman. But yeah, she's she is like, oh, I watched it, you know, like you or I. She's like, I, I came home every day after school and, and watched two episodes of the Flintstones. Um, but yeah, it's funny because it seems like everybody else is kind of doing it as a role. Uh, Barney was meant to be, um, oh God, who, uh, Danny, Danny DeVito. DeVito. And Danny DeVito thought that he, Danny DeVito wasn't right. He's like, no, I'm and too he's gross. Not, yeah. 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 I, I yes. am literally making a weird sideways face <laughs> and he at you apparently right now. Like, no, Rick that's Moranis. not right. <laughs> like, he, he suggested Rick Moranis. Uh, Elizabeth Perkins is great. She's Wilma. Um, there's a, obviously a lot of controversy about Rosie O'Donnell being cast as Betty. Yeah. I think she's great. I like her a lot, actually. And she does that. Like, she and then, did and the that's laugh, how she got it. She, she did the laugh. And the laugh is like, Bang on. 
Everybody is pretty perfect, is the truth, including the guy from Law and Order yeah. as the boss of the quarry. Like, yeah. he, he's great, and I've <laughs> never seen him in anything except this in Law and Order. Um, but uh, yeah. Now, I want to talk about Kyle MacLachlan just for a second, because when I went down the Wikipedia rabbit hole for the Flintstones movie, which there is one, um, like the actual like yeah. uh, Wicca, Wicca fandom thing that they make. Now, um, he is known on this Wikipedia for playing Isaac Izzard in the 2018 film adaptation of the house with a clock in its walls and he voiced donald love in grand theft auto 3 and i was like are these the known kyle mclaughlin roles no. for a certain generation <laughs> or is this showgirls. just happens to be this person's i don't know if you'd have showgirls without <laughs> flintstones because that idea of him playing an evil <laughs> corporate asshole who is also probably very sexual harassy yeah. comes yes, from Flintstones. Yes, yes. Uh, well, speaking of sexual harassment, I do want to talk about the Halle Berry mm. role, who is the person who is sexually harassed, who is really yeah. great in this. She doesn't phone it in. She's fantastic. She's sexy. She's smart. Like, when she turns it on the end, she's the one who gets the comeuppance in the end, and she's fantastic. Um, but she also was so excited to play this role because it wasn't originally written for a black mm. woman, whatever that means. Um, but she just proved that she was incredibly sexy, which she is, and we're like, yeah, let's just, we'll, we'll give it to her. Her. She did an incredible audition for it. Yeah, and she says it's a significant step in her career because it was mm -hmm. literally her first role that was yeah. not specifically written for a black woman. Um, and it's it's interesting because you get kind of both that feel good story and and I will say there's a great um, write up about uh, her moments with Fred because they are like it's a I can't. It's like that moment when it's a website. If you look up like Halle Berry and Flintstones, there's a great little essay on her moments with Fred because she is this femme fatale, but essentially Fred wins her over by noticing that she's very smart and yeah. crafty and is like, you're very good at your job. And he kind of denies her. He thinks she's sexy, but yeah. he both, and she apologizes for essentially being a femme fatale. She's like, oh, sorry for flirting with you in front of your wife. And he's like, oh, my wife knows that I love her. It's not a big deal. Uh, and it's this like weirdly very charming scene. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's all that good stuff. But the interesting thing is Halle Berry, it's still pointed out, uh, even at the time in 1994, uh, that there was no merchandise of Sharon Stone. Mm, she does not right. appear in much of the marketing material, um, in spite of the fact that it is Halle Berry and she looks uh, almost her sexiest wearing like a cavewoman bikini uh, my yeah. question though is is it because it is too it is very sexualized and because the marketing is aimed towards children whereas the movie is yeah, not necessarily they have a response it, it's interesting because you can tell it's in like entertainment weekly and you can tell that Halle Berry is in the nicest way being like oh yeah I noticed there's no dolls of me like in a very like mm. preserving my career not being an angry black woman and they actually went to Brian Levant, the director, for a comment. And he he kind of, it's hard to tell, but he's like, he's talking specifically about dolls. And he's like, I'm not really sure where the kid, he's like, you have the good guy and the bad guy and you fight each other. And I'm not really sure where the Halle Berry doll fits in. Were there Kyle <laughs> McLaughlin dolls? Because I don't remember Kyle McLaughlin dolls. May yeah, maybe not. Uh, but he's on like uh, I think he's on like the McDonald's merch and stuff. Yeah, McDonald's was a major collaborator <laughs> in this film, so much so that they both brought back the McRib. I thought maybe mm. they originated the McRib with Flintstones. I yeah. think it did exist before, yes, but the McRib, yes, the McRib, McRib becomes the special. They transform a number of McDonald's into Rock Donalds, which are you actually see in the film. They go to Rock Donalds, and it says like dozens now, like six dozens served mm -hmm. instead of millions. 
Um, and there was, I remember. You'd be up that ladder yeah, every week. I remember the toys, the Happy Meal toys, the cups. I remember the, the cups, cups yeah. were like real glass. Had those cups for a long time, which is funny because the fact that they're real glass, glass had to be banned from the set because everyone was in their bare feet. So <laughs> yeah. there was a real safety mm-hmm. issue. And yet McDonald's is like, we're going to go, instead of those plastic cups like we had for Jurassic Park, we're going to go all glass. I mean, the set sounds fascinating because also, uh, I want to get back to McDonald's, number one. Please. But uh, <laughs> I'm also obsessed with the set because the men got very self-conscious about their arms. Uh, mm. So they were constantly working out. And you can see <laughs> John Goodman and Rick Moranis are jacked. <laughs> Their <laughs> arms are hugely yeah. swollen. And Kyle McLaughlin. Uh, but anyway, that's funny. But yeah, McDonald's, uh, I also want to say that in my memory, the Grand Pooba meal is the source of supersizing in Canada. Supersizing apparently existed before right. in the United States. But I did not. I do not remember supersizing before the Grand Pooba meal, which was available at so, McDonald's. And that was just a larger set of fries, a larger soda, but mm-hmm. a, it was a McRib, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How many people have diabetes because of this film? Yeah. Well, supersizing <laughs> is, is gone, I believe now. Uh, is it? Since yeah. uh, since Spurlock, yeah. Spurlock ruined it. Now, I want to bring this back to John Goodman mm-hmm. for a second, because as you mentioned, Cam, he was not particularly enthusiastic no. about doing this film. He looks like he's having a good time now he's yeah. there. But the aftermath was, uh, he has a great quote where he says, my Fred Flintstone doll is okay, but when I saw my face on a package of French fries, <laughs> well, that's enough already. Like, yeah. he really didn't want this media blitz, which which I get. Like, he's one of those actors who, like, he's been around forever. He's fantastic in everything he does, but it doesn't ever seem like he's kind of sought out, like, that level no. of, like, super start of fame of like I want to be on the cover yeah. Of, of yeah I want to be on I a mean, burger keep cup, in right? mind the amount of money he would have been making at this point because Roseanne probably yeah. was the number one yeah. American sitcom in the world during this time and this mm-hmm. was filmed um very quickly on a hiatus between the two seasons of Roseanne yeah. he didn't really need like I, I don't think he was paid radically for this film because the budget's quite low comparatively but I think for him it was like he really was forced to do this by Spielberg whereas he probably was getting a gigantic paycheck for Roseanne yeah it it sounds like when you read the contemporaneous reports I think you're right that it sounds like he was also he had to give up his hiatus to do something that was incredibly elaborate and also like it sounded like there was weird complications where he had to dye his hair for Fred and not Roseanne and blah 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 And, and and yeah it's interesting and it's also interesting because Spielberg apparently said that if Goodman didn't do it, the movie wouldn't go. And I think that often people wow. think that's charming, but I think that that puts a, a huge amount of pressure on somebody. Uh, no kidding! Think, like that's how many people's yeah, jobs are now responsible of people's for. Jobs are, are on what the George line. went. George went. <laughs> well, you know, it's uh, it, this when we talk about this is like was literally a film considered in development hell, and it was for so long that the role was originally meant to go to John Belushi, who was w- yeah. then alive. <laughs> <laughs> That's what didn't it then pass to James? Oh, it went yeah, from John oh, sure. to James. Jim, Jim, Jim okay. rolled in for most things. <laughs> Jim is. I mean, I love Jim nowadays. He's hilarious, but uh, he was even a poor man's Goodman for a while. I think. Yeah. Um, well, actually, let's talk about the development hell of this and the 35 oh writers, because this actually changed the the WGA rules. Cam, Alicia, are you familiar with this controversy? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I definitely yeah. recommend if you if somebody wants the full story, because God knows it's too much to get into. Uh, there's a great a variety article called Scribes Thrive on F-Stones, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is so annoying. Uh, but uh, yeah. 
it was developed for so long with so many drafts. I don't know if any of you have a favorite <laughs> draft, but it's like uh, Stephen D'Souza wrote the first one. Uh, it was re- developed for Richard Donner. Uh, it, it just seems like Donner got so many drafts he thought were stupid. He he bailed. Uh, and it's interesting. We've talked actually quite a bit about Richard Donner developing all these mm-hmm. projects that never went. Mm-hmm. So it seems like he was interestingly kind of a picky guy and probably for the best. Um and then eventually it kind of bumps around. I mean, there's so many drafts before the apparently the story that we get. There's uh, one that's which, like a road movie where like, yes, yeah, that's the grapes yeah, of wrath yeah. strike out across America during a depression. And that's I think Just is what? Daniel Golden and Joshua Golden in 1989. That sounds right, yeah. And so then eventually there's uh, Michael Wilson does this draft in 1992. By then it's Amblin and, and Spielberg uh, has the rights. And then Spielberg brings on Brian Levant. And Brian mm-hmm. Levant uh, is a name you might not know. He's the director of uh, Beethoven. And Problem probably, Child. Mm-hmm. And Problem Child. Uh, but interestingly, he is a guy who made his, he cut his teeth in sitcoms. And specifically a very successful thing that I did not know exists that was a reboot of Leave it to Beaver in the late 80s called Still the Beaver uh, that ran for four seasons. Get this, four seasons this ran uh, with most of the original cast of Leave it to Beaver. Uh, So he is a guy who knows how to handle these old IPs and update them. Uh, And he has the idea of, and I think why, again, it's weird to me reading all these reviews. There's like, there's no jokes in the Flintstones. I think it's crammed with jokes. There's so many jokes. Too many jokes. his idea was to essentially have uh, like a, a sitcom writer's room on steroids, as he says. So he brought smart. in tons and tons of writers. Only one woman, it is noted in a lot of things. I think the the like main writers he brought in are the ones that wrote Night Court, Family Ties, and Happy Days, which if yeah. you think about it, yeah. that makes sense why there are so many puns in this mm-hmm, film. Mm-hmm. So many just like punch-ups that are funny, but like meaningless. Like it really was just make yeah. this... Like, imagine this film had a laugh track and go. Yes, and Rick yeah. Moranis was in the writer's room as well. Uh, he, okay. he said he well, showed good. up. Uh, I mean, he said it was a crazy thing. Like, he even calls it crazy. He's like, it's the thing where everybody, I mean, the woman, the one credited woman is like, I don't know if a single line I wrote is in that. And I mean, the other thing that people all like to shout out is the the big script doctors of the day, uh, Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel, worked for two days for $100,000 on the script. Woof. Um, which, yeah, they are, they are kind of the, the late 80s Elaine Mays. <laughs> uh, and yeah, so... In the end, there's 35 writers, as you say. Uh, we know guilds don't like to credit people, and uh, they essentially created their current version of arbitration, which, if you don't know, is like an incredibly rigorous process. Uh, I think has gotten even more rigorous because I'm actually surprised, based on my knowledge of arbitration, I'm surprised some of the people are credited on this draft, like Stephen mm-hmm. D'Souza, who, who well, because he's the first he's draft, the first right? Draft, that's all, and that's it. But it's yeah. like nowadays arbitration tends to be like you created this in the script whereas mm-hmm. it seems to at that time be like well Stephen D'Souza got the ball rolling but probably none of the final script is Stephen D'Souza yeah there's a piece of writing advice that I've read which is if uh, you get a draft back of your own and someone has changed the character uh, yes. names make sure to change them back because that's them trying to get their credit on it yeah uh, I was going to say that the writing advice I've heard is you always have to add a new character <laughs> because uh, once that character is throughout the script, you get on the arbitration. Uh, the 
God, uh, Tom Lennon and uh, Robert Ben Garant have a really good screenwriting book where they have a whole chapter on. So you're writing part of a draft and want to get a lot of money. Uh, and it's, yeah, essentially little tips like that. But yeah, so anyway, it, it comes down to they end up putting a cap, I believe, of eight writers is the maximum you can uh, credit to any film. And from here on out, there are lots of films uh, that you or I, Children of Men is a famous one where uh, that was gone yeah. through so many drafts. And in the end, I believe they might have won an Oscar. And, and it's uh, very interesting who wins the Oscar and who doesn't. And, you know, you quite often hear that directors, for instance, do an uncredited draft um, of, of the films they work on. So, you know, somebody like so when somebody not Elaine May, it's, but think of someone like that, someone, you know, is a writer <laughs> who is directing, uh, they would obviously do a draft of their script come on sometimes when a black director gets a white person's script uh they do a pass of it, you know things like that so it's yeah it's fascinating yeah understandably well i want to get into um the fact that this made as much money as it did and having it in this like development hell makes sense that it, the sequel to this was not released until 2000 which was viva rock vegas which a completely different cast um so you've got now mark addy as fred flintstone stephen baldwin as barney rubble uh jane krakowski and kristen johnson as wilma good, yeah. and betty yes there we go that's great casting and then in the place of elizabeth Taylor, because obviously they were not going to get Elizabeth Taylor for this. They got uh, Joan Collins. Yeah. Which also, absolutely brilliant. Uh, my personal favorite is Alan Cumming as the great Gazoo. Yeah, that's really uh, smart. Man, he, that's such smart I, I, casting. I will say, I think it was also smart that they did not include the great Gazoo in the first film. Because there's too much going yeah. on. Yeah. Uh, but do you want, Alicia, do you want to talk a bit about Elizabeth Taylor and her, her strange yeah. role? But it's a delightful. Yeah, she plays Pearl Slaghoople, which I'm not even sure if I'm saying that right, but it's basically Fred's uh, mother-in-law, so Wilma's mom. This is her last film role. Like she she mm. gets quite ill, I think, soon after this and, and obviously passes away. But this is the last on-screen performance of golden Hollywood era legend uh, Elizabeth Taylor. She agreed to do it um, only on the condition that the two premieres that were set up for this film, one in New York City and one in Washington, D.C., that those premieres um, proceeds would benefit her AIDS charity. So a lot of money was raised for an AIDS charity through the Flintstones. The thing is, though, watching this film, she's probably the person having the most fun. Yeah. And she's so camp. First of all, she's so beautiful. Like, her eyes are just so purple in this film. I don't know if she's wearing contacts or that it really was her eyes. They have so much fun with her. Um, at one point, I think Fred is, like, fantasizing about her her caught in the mouth of a, like, uh, a brontosaurus <laughs> yeah. being eaten alive. And she fully performs the hell out of that yeah. fantasy scene. So I really want to, like, just comment on... What a consummate professional, what a what an incredible philanthropist that she would do things like this in order to raise so much money for um, AIDS at the time. I just think this is if there's if you hate this film, at least you can say Elizabeth Taylor is delightful. Um, she's really good at playing just just an evil, evil, evil step <laughs> or not stepmother. Oh, my gosh. Evil mother in law. And she has the good lines. I was going to say she has a lot of the best lines. Yeah. Yeah, I, I laughed so hard at that when I think about all the sacrifices your father made line that just killed me so hard. Yeah. yeah. And when I think of all the sacrifices your father made for you, lambs, oxen, your brother, Jerry. Yeah, your little brother. I was like, that's good. And she delivers it so straight. Yeah. <laughs> it's I great. Mean, the, um, yeah. um, 
the what the thing we use in the little clip i did is yeah the uh, he's a Fred's a great provider, and she says all he's provided you is shade, which I <laughs> also uh, love. But yeah, I mean, the, I, it's interesting because it's also her first film since like about 1988. So yeah. that one wasn't released either. Oh, the 88 yeah. one wasn't released. So yeah. every review makes a big deal of her appearance, and it's it's cool because every review, like you say, Alicia says she looks beautiful. She's having oh. a great time. Uh, apparently on set she got when she showed up on set she got 30 bouquets of flowers a cartier watch a prehistoric bowling ball with her name engraved on it and a bottle of her perfume redesigned in the bedrock style yeah. which is like so cute and there's a there is a report on set uh when she was uh filming and everyone is so excited all the actors are like Whoa, i mean coming Coming back to what you're saying about reviews, Cam, there's some really mean reviews of this film. I mean, this was pretty yeah. universally panned despite achieving $350 million at the box office in North America alone. Um, one of my favorite like headlines for uh, a review is Yabba Dabba Boo. <laughs> Almost writes itself, right? And then there's another sure. review I was reading where the person points out that they just wish the actors could step aside so they could just view all the boulders in the background because they were so beautiful. And that is the thing about this film is, no, there's not much of a plot, just like a Flintstones episode. But the production design, this film looks absolutely immaculate. Uh, I love the way this film looks. And we have the Agreed. B-52s. Yes. BC-52s. Yes. I mean, who better? Because they're a party band, right? So they're like played yeah. all the fun songs. They play the Twitch, Twitch. They do it all. They, they write the bedrock Twitch. And then for the end credits, they compose um, or they, they sing like the Flintstones credits. Yeah. Uh, and there was a music video. It's a pretty fun music video. Even with like Halle Berry in it, they're all in it. Um, I do. I didn't notice Cindy Wilson though in the. So it's almost. I think there's. There, we're missing Cindy Wilson for some reason mm. in the band at this mm. point, which I was kind of confused by. But I will say the the B fifty twos slash B C fifty twos sequence for me is probably the highlight of the film. It's pretty great. And then just the dance number is really well shot. All of this is really well shot as well. I think it's it's uh, really a credit to Brian Levitt that he knew how to shoot this world. Totally. And yeah. show it from all the different angles. And he's obsessed yeah. with the Flintstones. I don't I don't know if I said that before. Like, that's why he got it. Not even, it was pre-Beethoven, pre-Problem Child. Steven Spielberg just yeah. knew that he was obsessed with the Flintstones. He was a He's collector. a famous toy collector, yeah. yeah. Wow. He's a fascinating guy. There's a really great quote, actually, with him. Because uh, <laughs> the quote is followed by saying, like, uh, like your movie are universally panned <laughs> how does that make you feel and he's like i'm making movies for the audience when i was sitting at home watching garfield goose and the three stooges to read those reviews is an act of self-flagellation but reviews be damned when you're at blockbuster and you see family after family grabbing one of your movies off the shelf on a friday night and i was like that's right yeah, Brian it's kind of cool that's right. haters. Yeah. yeah i think it's just kind of cool where he's like oh i don't make art <laughs> he's like what are you talking about <laughs> i know what i yeah, do <laughs> yeah it's funny that he's like yeah i know all my movies are panned but it doesn't matter it's like wow yeah. uh who's your therapist man <laughs> yeah, just before we wrap up, I do want to say, like, this was a big missed opportunity. And I've been kind of down, like, a, a theme park rabbit hole recently and, like, figuring out that, like, why they didn't have um, a Flintstones land that they had built within Universal Studios for this is because this is an Amblin Universal co-pro. Um, I am absolutely shocked, especially Spielberg was, like, their consultant at that time. And from my understanding, the sets were all put into storage at yes. the time in case there was a theme park or for the sequel because they were just so expensive to I build. Think what you're 
forgetting Becky, and I'm sorry that we're going to now again be very Toronto-centric, and I have this advantage over you and Cam, because <laughs> ah, yes. you grew up in Edmonton. Mm-hmm. There was a Flintstones world at Paramount, Canada's Wonderland, which opened in the early 1980s. So I wonder if that's actually the conflict, because Hanna-Barbera had been licensed to Paramount theme parks, which at the time, 94, um, Wonderland still was Paramount. Um, now it's like they had to re- re- change all the names of the Paramount rides, like Top Gun is like Flight Deck, mm-hmm. things like that. But when I grew up going to Canada's Wonderland, you know, we went to the to the Flintstone house. There was a Smurf village. There was all all the like um, merchandise was Flintstone themed. So I'm wondering if there was a conflict there. Uh, they did have a ride at Universal that mm-hmm. was a Hanna-Barbera ride. Okay. It was just one. And it was one of those motion simulator ones. But instead of like Star Tours at at um, Disney World where the, or Disneyland where they had like the one unit where you'd then shake around mm-hmm. in it, this had the, as we now know, like if you've d- been to Universal Studios and you've done like the Simpsons ride or the Minions ride, which ha- the Hanna-Barbera ride became, mm-hmm. it's all the little individual compartments looking at one giant yeah. screen and moving around. So it actually pioneered that technology um and that's yeah it then became the minion ride i don't think universal's ever quite figured out what to do with children's properties in Mm. the same way disney world has because they're known for thrill rides as opposed Mm -hmm. to disney world yeah that makes sense i mean i'd really like to see a deputy dog ride (laughs) (laughs) talk about your old ips i was gonna just say all this is teaching me becky that you never got to take a summer vacation to flintstones bedrock city in colona bc oh it's still is, there no. the sign is still there my dad lives it's, it's now dino town yeah, it's yeah. no longer oh, allowed to be what it is but yeah there I, I i enjoyed going to bedrock city when i was a child um, Ugh, no we went camping and it rained wow. once <laughs> that was it all right and i think on that note let's uh move along to our next film uh where we're going to be looking at the very idea of a cameo why is it there who do people like to see showing up in their children's movies that's coming up after the break i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on linkedin you'll miss out on great candidates like sandra start hiring professionals like a professional Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. For many filmmakers, the movies were an escape from the trials of life growing up. Last season, we talked about Terrence Davies and how his masterpiece, The Long Day Closes, couldn't have been made without his escape into movie theaters as a child. Iconoclast filmmaker Penelope Spheris has a similar story. She wouldn't call herself a cinema obsessive, but in interviews, she's talked about movies as an escape. Growing up as part of a traveling carnival and living in various trailer parks, Spheris found comfort and familiarity in getting money collecting Coke bottles and then escaping into a movie theater for an afternoon. 
In between the main features, they'd play shorts, newsreels, and classics, including The Little Rascals, our gang. So after Wayne's World success, Spheris passed on the Brady Bunch movie because she knew nothing about it, but when The Little Rascals came along, she knew exactly what to do. And I actually think she does an awesome job on this. It is so much fun. Cam, I know you lolled a few times. Alicia, how do you feel about it? Let's talk Little Rascals. I'm someone who kind of grew up watching the R Gang shorts. They were on television a lot because, like we said earlier, they were um, public domain. And so I was familiar with sort of the characters. And I think even before Little Rascals came out, you know, it was always a joke on the schoolyard of, you know, that alfalfa thing with the hair, like having yeah. a piece of hair. You know, I probably didn't know who Spanky or Buckwheat were, but I, I knew who alfalfa was. And so this film comes around and I think... It's interesting because I would never have expected Penelope Spears to be attached to it, if not for the fact that she was so great as the director of Beverly Hillbillies. Yeah, yeah. That's one I have to revisit because I remember really liking that one, especially the Dolly Parton cameo. This is a woman who's very good at musical cameos. Yeah, yeah. I mean, think about about also Penelope Spears, of course, is uh, Wayne's World. So, I mean, that's right. Massive hit in 1992, which we talk about on the show in the first season. Um, Truly, no one saw Wayne's World coming in terms of, you know, it was a really popular SNL skit. And it was produced by Lauren Michaels, but I don't think anyone predicted the massive box office success it would be. So it's interesting that she then kind of transitions into these very beloved intellectual property titles, these legacy titles that everyone universally would recognize. I will say Beverly Hillbillies is 100% worth watching for Cloris Leachman alone because (laughs) R.I.P. Cloris Leachman. I mean, I actually really like the film, but good Lord, is she good as uh, Granny. But we have The Little Rascals in 1984, and it's interesting to me because this is really, it's it's much like Flintstones. It's really smart because boomers will have grown up with Little Rascals, and they will absolutely be nostalgic for it, and they will take their children. So it's really two birds of one stone. So it's a financial, it's, it's, it's a very smart financial move. Now, Little Rascals didn't make the kind of big bucks that Flintstones did, but it was relatively successful. Really what's most important about Little Rascals You know, the storylines are drawn directly from the shorts that kind of start appearing in the 20s into the 1930s. I think specifically, um, if you look at a short like Hearts or Thumps, which is where we see the the He-Man Woman Haters Club, which the boys have (laughs) formed to um, hate women. This is um, prototypical incels, kind of, but not really. We'll talk about that. They're they're really not. But there's a lot of like boys hating girls, and I I really love it. Member and good standing of the He-Man Woman Haters Club. Do solemnly swear to be a He-Man and hate women and not play with them or talk to them unless I have to. And especially, never fall in love. And if I do, may I die slowly and painfully and suffer for hours or until I scream bloody murder. The whole point of the main plot of the movie is that they come around to the fact that girls kick ass. Yes. Like, that's yeah, girls kind are of fun. heroes. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of actual gags that are pretty much recreated shot for shot from titles like Hook and Ladder from 1932, the Russian Ballet, where we get this great drag sequence of uh, Spanky and uh, Alfalfa as ballet dancers, uh, male and female. 
it's it's really hearkening back to the late silent era and the early 1930s kind of pre-code uh, comedies. And I think she does it really well because you can, much like the director of Flintstones, Brian Levant, realize that he loves and lives and breathes Flintstones. I think she really must have loved Little Rascals and was able to make a modern film in the 1990s set in Los Angeles. And she's filming, in some cases, in the exact same, like, on location sets as mm. the Little Rascals, as Hal Roach did oh. uh, in his shorts. And she's really able to make L.A. look like the old L.A., which we know definitely didn't exist in the 90s and definitely does not exist today. And it, you know, there's not much of a plot. It's just sight gags. So Spanky is much more of a Southern gentleman than he is in... He's more of a Bronx New Yorker in the shorts uh, originally. But here he's kind of this Southern little man. How are you? Good to see you. Your flies on the line. Welcome. All right, Spanky. And the kids are so well cast. And so cute. Yeah. Oh my like, God, they're so it's cute. It's not just that they look like the characters did in the 1930s. She does a really good job with that. Um, it's that they're excellent actors. And there's a there's a story yeah. from behind the scenes where her process, I mean, she's a mother at this point. She would hug every one of the actors every morning, ask them, like, really had, like, wanted that kind of, like, motherly intimacy. I mean, this is a woman who is punk as fuck, keep in mind. Yeah. Like, this is... Uh, a- this is the director of The Decline of Western Civilizations, part one through yeah. three. You know, badass. she married a gutter punk. Yeah. Like, she's yeah. badass. Well, she's yeah. also able to elicit these really lovely performances. And, you know, there's an old adage in Hollywood that I know everyone has heard, never work with children, never work with animals. She does it. She does both these things because you also have wonderful animal performances by Elmer the monkey playing himself and Petey. I mean, the R gang um, shorts are always revolving around this very cute dog with, uh, I think, a pit bull with um, a circle, like a circle mark around its eye. And so here we get another Petey that I think is very effective in Little Rascals. And I love all the animal sequences. There's a great interview she does with Bobby Wygett where she's got Petey sitting right next to her. Um, and uh, and like they, it's neat because the, in the Bobby Wygett archival footage, they don't have the cuts. It's not edited for television. You actually get to see the before and after and how the whole thing went through. And the trainer for Petey is just off and like is like getting him to like sit, stay, Kate, okay, do this. Now like you're watching him. And uh, Bobby Waggett goes, man, if only you could do that with the kids. She's like, I know. Yeah. <laughs> There's it's, the, it's the really end funny. sequence of Little Rascals. And I really encourage listeners if they're going to watch this film. And I think you should. Um, it's no masterpiece, but it's really fun, especially if you have kids. It's so if you, charming. If you let it go out to the end credits, you see the outtakes. And the amount of times the actress who plays Darla looks at the camera directly. <laughs> and it's Penelope, don't do it. Don't do yeah. Brittany. Don't do it, Brittany. 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 <laughs> it's like so cute. There's a, actually there's another interview that Bobby Wygate does with some of the kids, including Kevin Jamal Woods, who plays Stymie with a little kid with the bowler hat. And apparently Kevin had an impersonation he did yeah. of Penelope Spears, which is in the interview where he's like, don't look at the camera, darling, yeah. darling. Don't look at the camera. I love you. I love you. Don't look at the camera. <laughs> and so he was this little kid doing it. It's so It's funny. probably not that much different from directing a documentary on um, coked yeah. out drug addled musicians. No, no. Right? So I, I, and I I honestly think that a lot of the reason why she tackles it and it works so well is because she's a documentary filmmaker because she has a, a like a long background in documentary filmmaking because she's they, the other thing that I find interesting is yeah again talking about this property being so significantly older I do want to point out that as much as we're like whoa like whoa so going so far back uh, this year we're getting a remake of West Side Story which is about as old as our gang was yeah. in the 90s um but uh 
she's a, a boomer and not a not a Gen X person, in spite of the fact that Wayne's World and Decline of the Western Civilization are, are both Gen X kind of iconic films. She's a she's a you know she's ten years older than Amy Heckerling. She's, yeah. I think uh, she was like in her mid thirties when she made Part One. Yeah, yeah. probably. Yeah. I mean, yeah, because yeah. she started in documentary in the seventies. So mm-hmm. if not, I, I don't have. She directed of it. early Saturday Night Live, or she produced uh, all the Albert Brooks shorts for Saturday Night Live. Oh, that I didn't know. That's an interesting yeah, yeah. genealogy when you think about her then taking over so many, or at least the Wayne's World SNL properties. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think that that's, yeah exactly. Yeah. So she, it's it, I but I do think that there's and she actually her solution to the kids looking at the camera because she decided that the problem was that the children were seeing themselves in the reflection of the lenses because it was big Panavision lenses. Mm-hmm. So she essentially uh, creates uh, a version of the Interatron, which is a, like a documentary thing where she set up a mirror in the eye line of the children so they could look at themselves. While they were acting, that was where she wanted the eyeline, uh, which is like a famous technique uh, that, uh, oh God, what's his face? Errol Morris. Errol Morris. Can we send created. that to our producer um, and director of A Year in Film, Ryan Maines? Because I actually would prefer to look at myself in the mirror <laughs> while I'm oh, on that enough. show. I, I do know we tried to set up an Interatron once and got annoyed we with it. We did try that. Yeah, I remember. Because yeah. you need a mirrors. Inter- a real Interatron involves mirrors and things. So it's, it's either costly or a pain in the ass (laughs) well i want to talk about the reason why she was having so many issues with these kids is because these kids are as young as four they go from age four to age nine which is bonkers that you have the kids doing what they're doing delivering the lines they were hitting those jokes like hitting those jokes like seasoned professionals um at this point in like the the our gang kids those kids had basically been on vaudeville since they were born like that's kind of the level it's funny because when we talk about like how did she do it and it's like uh, there's no question how they did it in our gang day uh child abuse (laughs) yes 100 (laughs) you'd throw them across the room and they'd learn how to do it so here what she did, which is actually pretty incredible, is that she shot everything in like super bite-sized chunks. So like she would get the moment and be like, okay, got it, next. And so it was all these, and then she shot on film, not digital. So it's like chunk, 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 chunk. One of the studio execs was actually terrified. He's like, I don't know what this is going to look like. How can you know what this is going to look like? And he demanded to see a cut of the film, which apparently, according to the WGA rules, um, you can't do, or you, yeah, the Director's DGA, Guild rules. Think, yeah, yeah. yeah, the DJA, thank you. You can't see it until 10 days in mm-hmm. you're not allowed to ask a director for a cut until 10 days into filming because nobody really knows what's going to be at that point but she did it anyway and he was like oh shit you do know what this is going to look like yeah and it it works like it's crazy how good how good it all works out at one point apparently though she had to have pas hold the children's yeah, legs I so like they that. would not wander she said, off she said camera. that looking in the camera it wasn't the problem it was children literally wandering out of shots <laughs> She, and she's or, like literally a butterfly will go by and they're like, nup, 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 nup. <laughs> like they just go away and you're like, I mean, no. keep in mind with the original R Gang shorts, those kids got swapped out all mm. the time. It yeah. was just yeah. commonplace to be like, oh, we got a new Darla. Oh, we got yeah. a new Spanky. Like it really was. So much so that apparently in the 80s, in the 70s and 80s, there was like a rash of people who claimed they had been part yeah, of R yeah. Gang, like, like imposters. And they yeah, would come out and great, be like, I had been on this and try to make a career out of it. Great joke wild. on The Simpsons that Mo is one of the little rats. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he killed the, the original the alpha. Yes, yeah. yes. Well, I mean, uh, the sad, not to be a, a downer, but the sad thing about if you look at the, and I've extensively researched this potentially for a future podcast the afterlives of these child actors very cursed 20s and 30s they're either murdered or Mm. they are murderers (sighs) like the amount of our gang and little rascal child actors who died 
horribly tragic deaths soon after. Oh. I mean, the dog got poisoned, which yeah. no one can figure yeah. out. Like, it's just like, yeah. what the hell happened? No, it's it's wild, and and it's interesting because there it's noted in the Wikipedia, and there's a few things about it where it's like a few actors were like, well, don't you want the old R gang uh, showing up in cameos? <laughs> and it's like, number one, there's probably not a lot of roles for elderly people in this film. And number two, they did want Spanky, so it's like, you kind of wonder who these other people were and whether they showed up in, like, two-and-a-half-hour yeah. gang shorts. And, yeah. Because, uh, yeah, obviously Spanky was real. Uh, I don't know, yeah. I think the cameos were very focused on handling Donald Trump's <laughs> role in this film. And, yes, Donald Trump <sighs> is in this film pretty much as himself, as one of the, the father. Uh, but, but apparently one of the only times he is in a cameo where he's not himself. where he's, It's true. <laughs> he is... Uh, a random Donald Trump like figure. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a character, there's a um like a rich boy, r- literally a Richie Rich who mm-hmm. is the little kid from Full House, the cousin yes. and uh the he, one that looks like a Culkin but isn't a Culkin. Yeah, he looks like a Culkin, yeah. isn't a Culkin. Oh yeah, bang on. Steals yeah. Darla away from Alfalfa and so that his father's Donald Trump. So basically this is Donald Trump J Trump Jr., which is interesting. And uh yeah, he's like the line is like uh you're the you're the best son money can buy. <laughs> it's really funny. Mm, yes, it's. I mean, yeah, great lines. And he and uh, Penelope Spears gets her digs in by uh, having a long, like we say, a long bunch of kid outtakes, and then uh, and capping Donald it Trump off with outtakes. a bunch of Donald Trump outtakes. Saying but you get he was... the sense that he only gave one take right because yes, but also yeah. you get the sense that he, I think they tell him not to look in the camera. He's uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so you get Treat a charming... him like a four year old. Yeah, would be. she pretty understood. Much. She understood. All right, I do want to get to these cameos, though, because, like, when we watch movies now, like I mentioned, we, we were watching um, the old uh, Muppet movies with my small person, and, like, they just love them. And the cameos are exciting for me and yeah. my partner, because it's like, oh, my God, it's Richard Pryor. You know, like, mm. we get really excited. But they have no idea who they are. It's just another character actor, right? Mm. So in here, it's kind of like, do children love George Went? <laughs> like, why is George Went in this movie? I mean, movie? oddly enough, I, I love him. Don't known get me wrong, because my yeah, parents I watched watch, Cheers. Cheers was like, on all the time. Cheers, okay. So I would have known, and it's just a year away from Toy Story. Oddly enough. Oh, okay, okay. And then, but like Mel Brooks showing up as the bank manager in like one of my favorite scenes where the kids show up literally in trench coats I, and trying to get I would have been that's like, so oh my funny. God, that's uh, Spaceballs. That's that guy yeah. from Spaceballs. I don't know his Interesting. name, but that's so cool he's in this film. You can't treat people this way, mister. You're not people. You're kids. There's a good... Daryl Hannah. I would have known Daryl Hannah from Splash. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Leah I don't Thompson know. Thompson from Howard the Duck. Um, uh, Whoopi Goldberg. Back to the, back to the <laughs> future, Alicia. Please, back to the future. <laughs> I know from Howard the Duck. You the Whoopi Goldberg one. See, this for me is like an epitome of what a cameo should be, mm. right? Because it's like, look, it's your mom, Whoopi, and you look over and it's freaking Whoopi Goldberg, and I'm like, okay, that real. Or funny. I will she does say, the little hand I knew thing. Reba McIntyre yeah. from Tremors. Yeah, I was really yes. okay. didn't realize she was a singer. Didn't care that she was a singer. She was in Tremors, and that made her very cool to me. Sure. Man, you saw a lot of movies at a certain age that maybe you were not. I think this podcast is covered that my parents showed me inappropriate <laughs> films from. The first. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> true. True. Yeah. I I mean, I don't know. It's they're they're silly and they're fun, and yeah, it's it's hard to imagine. In fact, I actually think that there's so many cameos that I was a little put off trying to strain my eyeballs when you saw. Uh, I think Buckwheat's dead and Alfalfa's dead, and you were and I was like, well, why aren't those somebody? Yeah, they're not. They look like no. the kids. It's funny, but it's true. Yeah, That's it's a, a good real gag, missed opportunity. But yeah, it seems like it should be. You know, somebody. we also have Raven Simone and the mm-hmm. ultra creepy ultra creepy Olsen twins that do not belong in this film whatsoever. Why 
boys are jerks? <laughs> You're not thinking about alfalfa, are you? Oh, no, 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 no way. Are you sure? I'm sure if you had a children's movie, they probably had some sort of agreement with every studio that they're, they're, those two kids had to be in at least something. I would not be surprised. Yeah, yeah and maybe. I mean, it's worth saying that a lot of these kids were kids you would recognize. Buckwheat is Russ Badgley from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Uh, Cortland Mead is briefly in it. He's somebody you would recognize. Bug Hall, the main kid, was the kid in everything because Bug Hall was actually nine years old but looked about six years old. Um, yeah. yeah, so it's interesting. I, not a lot of them went on to a ton, but it's kind of, it's charming to me that almost all of them have their little rascals photo as their IMDb photo. Yeah. So I think that they had a good time. I know recently there was like a 20th anniversary. You can look up a cute photo shoot and behind the scenes and they all seem to have a really good time and enjoy themselves and remember my, my all these. My favorite's Froggy. Froggy. Yes. Yeah. With Froggy this great mullet, good. bucket mullet hat. A uh, lot of mullets, mullet yeah. 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 A lot of mullets. No, I think this is just a good time. And it's it's harkens to like a movie that like is in that family vein where it is simultaneously for kids and adults at the same time. Yeah. There's really not a lot of inappropriate jokes or content well, content in Becky, here. There's the Reba McIntyre line. Uh, is that a cowlick or are you just happy to see me? <laughs> that is fair. I that is a bit like eh. but that falls into the category of if your kids get the joke, it's not my fault. Mm-hmm. True. Yeah. I think so. Kids get, yeah. kids get boners. It's the uh, <laughs> thing. Thank you, Ken. Uh, yeah, Thank you. yeah. I don't know. It's a, it's an interesting movie. And I actually, I think I'm, uh, because I'm a content specialist, uh, I'm on TikTok <laughs> a lot. And actually, uh, a lot of trends have come out of this film. Uh, people might know, like Alfalfa singing You Are So Beautiful to mm-hmm. Me is is a TikTok trend. Uh, the uh, <laughs> I Love You, I Just Don't Want Anyone to See You. Is a TikTok trend, uh, or the I'm not ashamed of you. That's it. I'm not ashamed of you. I just don't want anyone to see you. Uh, is a good TikTok trend. So there's like a few of them, weirdly. So it's like there must be, uh, and I mean, I know when I was a kid, the like I, I got a dollar was a big, yeah, big deal. Uh, yeah, I sang that all the time. Mm. Apparently, it's improv. Yeah, oh, that's adorable. Great. Once again, yeah. awesome. I, I think a TikTok trend should be the man eating chicken, where you think it's like you know a man eating chicken, but it's really just a, a guy eating some chicken. You know, it's like they're doing like a fake freak show, but it's uh, just a guy eating yes. like Popeye's chicken, which is very funny. Mm-hmm. No, everything, all the little gags. I love the gags. My personal favorite is the um, the talent show and the fact that to win Darla back, this nine year old child sings the air that I breathe by the Hollies. And I'm like, <laughs> thank you, Penelope Spear. Yeah. It took me a second because he's so off key and I had to listen to lyrics and I was like, oh my God, he is singing that song, which is so, but it's inappropriate, but not inappropriate at the same time. Like it's one of those things, like you need to know the lyrics to that song to know that it's, you know, not something a nine year old should be singing to another nine or like another six year old should be singing to another six year old. I really love the Muppet Man scene where they're they're trying to set up a bank account or get a bank mm-hmm. loan. So it's like yes. two, two kids on another two set of two kids shoulders with a long trench coat and a hat and a long beard and Mel Brooks is the bank manager and sees through it but then as they're coming out there's two proper men who look exactly like that who are walking in it's I don't know those things I think that's probably from um, one of the old uh, our gang shorts but it, I don't know I laughed throughout this film I was kind of surprised the gags are just relentless yeah, yeah and I mean there's that's the thing is that they're really a mile a minute so when there's something that now is kind of boring like the two kids with their fishing reels caught on each other I'm like oh, okay whatever but uh <laughs> but then there's a lot and a lot of great wordplay 
and mm-hmm. a lot of great like again a lo- this is a like a gif machine mm-hmm. uh, darla crushing her coke can so good the so little good. the actress who plays darla is so good darla is just she's got to be one of the youngest like four or five mm. at most she's just really 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 sweet in this and really nails her lines which watching the outtakes afterwards i realized okay, that's probably the 99th take that they tried, mm. but she, she really brings it. Yeah. But again, the language and the articulateness these kids have, that you're watching her like have these huge effusive statements about what she is looking for in a man yeah. is like, mm-hmm. wow, okay, that's really impressive. Yeah. And of course she saves the day, which I love. It's, it's interesting because there was this kind of trend of a lot of women filmmakers who had made it big in the early 90s now doing children's films, yeah. but they're all pretty good. So, like, Penelope Spheres is doing Little Rascals. Carolyn Thompson did Black Beauty. And Jillian Armstrong did uh, Little Women. Yeah. So, it's, like, it's interesting. Cause, and you wonder whether it's pigeonholing because, you know, motherly, whatever. They're willing to work with younger children. But when it comes to something like Penelope Spheres, who apparently had to argue against the studio to have actors this young, she knows what she's doing. She made the smart point of saying, if you want sequels, you're going to have to yeah, get them real young. I like because that. Because it's, it's very not smart. It's, it's brilliant, yeah. Um, that and the fact that they originally wanted Steven Spielberg to executive produce, mm-hmm. and then, but there wasn't a script yet. And she was like, all right, well, let me write a script and see how it goes. And then she wrote the script, and he liked it so much, he decided he wanted to direct. And they were like, no, 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 you're too busy. Mm-hmm. Give it to Penelope. She did this. This is part of the deal. So, I don't know. I just think she's just such an incredible person. And if you are not familiar with more of her works than just Wayne's World, please go check them out. Because, yeah, she's yeah. really something great special. Inter- Reviews, super I was going to say, if you can ever get yeah. to any live event where she's introducing her film, happens pretty mm-hmm. frequently in San Francisco because that's the area she lives in, you will not be disappointed. She is the best Q&A, best you know, onstage conversation, very upfront, very honest, mm-hmm. tells it like it is. Uh, it's it's pretty great. Early, she keeps threatening to write a book. Yeah. I can't wait for it. Uh, yeah, that's true. She she threatens that her book is going to destroy Hollywood. She's one of those people. I uh, although, it, yeah. Also, early Weinstein hater should should have listened to her. Uh, she told us all. Did something similar to her that they did to um, Lizzie Borden mm-hmm. from uh, our Love Crimes episodes? Except from for what it sounds like a much dumber movie. <laughs> yeah. yes. Which movie was Sense, it? Senseless with mm-hmm. uh, Marlon Wayans and David Spade. Yeah. Um, if people want a really good one, uh, a really good story, go have a look at the uh, the story she tells about um, speaking to Nikki Six when he wanted to date her 17-year-old daughter when he was in his 40s. Oh, my God. That's a real <laughs> yeah. good story. And, I mean, she, she has a lot of sweet stories, too, because she says that, you know, Spielberg told her she was kind of a little like, oh, I don't know about this movie with Little Rascals. And he said that, you know, working with children like this is going to be the most satisfying film you ever make. And she said that she was. I think that is the perfect place to end it. I've had so much fun on this one, guys. I actually really enjoyed watching both Yay, of these movies. Yeah. Thank you. Um, you know, the next ones we've got coming up, There's I love watching them, but there's definitely some stuff to dig into. So this was this was really pleasant. Um, Alicia Fletcher, thank you so much. It's always such a pleasure. Thank you, Becky. I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I, I was sad that these both got cut out of the show version. Yeah. So it's nice to treat them with even more in-depth kind of research and, and commentary. Anytime I get to read Penelope Spears interviews, I'm happy, yeah. as you say, man. I'd like to, she's just such a fascinating person to me. Uh, Cameron Maitland, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know what to say. Little rascals, go, go get them. <laughs> go get them. Yes. What, what do they say? Spinoli? Spino- Is that what they say? <laughs> Something sure. like that. Let's give ourselves a big spolioli. 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 spolioli.
I don't know. Okay, well, I'll, I'm just going to stick with my own stuff. I'll do the waving under my chin. You just can't see it. <laughs> Thank you, Cam. We'll all do it. If only the listeners could see us now. And you can join us next week where we look at two even older IP properties. That's right. We're headed back to the 30s and 40s with Radio Land Murders and The Shadow. Will I convince Alicia that The Shadow belongs in its own special place in the blockbuster pantheon? You'll have to find out next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to email the podcast? You can do so at podcast at hollywoodsuite.ca. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial free. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite on demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland, and featured Cameron Maitland and Alicia Fletcher as guests. Supervising producer is Ryan Maines. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagne. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.